it's not just about you coming and hearing me, but it's about us coming together as the body. And, uh, you know, last week, uh, as the first weekend of the new year, we talked about the gospel and, and why it's important for us to preach the gospel. And I'm going to kind of continue in that theme tonight, <clears throat> but I'm going to talk more specifically tonight about the church. If we don't we don't understand the gospel, we're not going to understand the church, are we? If we don't know what the gospel, what the good news fundamentally is, then there's a really good chance that we will misunderstand what the church is. And I really believe that there is a fundamental misunderstanding that exists, especially in our Western culture, especially here in America of what the gospel actually is and, and, and who the church really is. And I see this, um, I see the fruit of this in a lot of different areas. Um, I talked with someone this week um, who, uh, just a friend of mine in the ministry who has gone through some really rough times. And I really believe it's fundamentally because the church doesn't really understand who she is. And we begin to major on the minors instead of what the Scripture commands. And so I have purposed that in preaching and teaching to you that we are going to take this year and really uh, we're not going to get in a hurry and we're going to make sure that, that everybody that comes here to Christ Fellowship because uh, I can't really do much about anybody else. This is the congregation that God has placed me to be the shepherd of. And Jesus ultimately is the shepherd of the sheep. Amen? But I am a pastor. That's my vocation. That's my calling. And as a pastor, my calling is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we can't be equipped for the work of ministry if we don't understand the nature of the work. And the nature of the work is the gospel. And those that are doing the work are the church. And so these are very fundamental things that we can oftentimes assume. And you know what happens when you assume, right? I won't tell you because you know. We often assume that we know these things. But I have found that that is... Unfortunately, oftentimes not the case. Uh, my son, Caleb, um, gave me a book. Actually, he, he, he's letting me read it. It's a little book. And, um, and it really goes along with you know, what, what the Lord has put in my heart. And I want to read a quote from this book. Um, you guys remember when we saw the video? Um, what was the name of that? Collision. Remember when we saw Collision? And the atheist was Christopher Hitchens, and the, the Christian guy that was debating him was Douglas Wilson. Well, Douglas Wilson is the, the author of this little book. It's called A Primer on Worship and Reformation. And there's a quote uh, I really liked. It says, As the worship of God in the church is put right, it will have a dramatic impact on the unbelieving world outside. Just as our current shenanigans are, com are comforting to them in their disobedience. Now listen, I want to read that sentence again. 
just as our current shenanigans are, are comforting to them in their disobedience, so will our reformation be profoundly unsettling. When the church abandons her disobedience, can the world be far behind? Now we look out at the world and we point fingers and cast stones at them for their disobedience. But should we be surprised? They're lost. They're sinners. And can we be truly surprised at their disobedience when the church itself, who represents the body of Christ in the earth, is walking in such disobedience? And so, who is left to bring correction? Well, Paul wrote to Timothy and he says, the word of God is is given by God. It's inspired by God for reproof, for correction. And so it is the place of the church to declare the truth, to bring about the correction necessary so that there can be an accurate witness of Christ in the earth. Amen? So let's talk about about the church. I'm gonna let's let's begin in Matthew 16, 18. Matthew 16, 18. Let's go there. Father, we just ask you tonight that by your spirit you would open our hearts and open our minds, open the eyes of our understanding, God. Lord, I can teach and I can preach, but there is one teacher and one teacher alone that can bring true revelation. And that is the spirit of truth. And we ask you tonight, Holy Spirit to bring a revelation of the living word, Jesus Christ, to bring a revelation of his body in the earth, the church, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds to receive and comprehend your truth to set us free. Lord, we ask this tonight in the name of your dear son. And everybody said, amen. All right, Matthew 16, verse 18 is the famous verse that we, many of you could probably quote right now. But let's, uh, let's begin reading in verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. It said, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, let's pause there for a moment. Now, I could ask this question that Jesus asked to his disciples. Who do men say that I am? And if you stop and think, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of Christians, there are a lot of people in the church who will tell you who Jesus is based on what men have told him. Or what men have told them. I wonder how many people in the church 
a serving a Jesus that has been revealed to them by man and not by their Father in heaven? Now that's a good question. How many people are serving a Jesus that has been revealed to them by man, but they have not gotten a revelation from heaven as to who Jesus truly is? Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they told him. But then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, let's go on. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, man has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. You are rock. And on this Rock. Now, if we could read Greek tonight, we would see that the word Peter that's translated in the English, Peter, is a Greek word, Petra. And this other word, on this rock, is also a Greek word. It's the same, almost the same Greek word. If you looked in a concordance, they're just, they're just one number off, and one's a feminine form and one is a masculine form but what's interesting is when Jesus said you are Peter that word for rock means you are a piece you are a smaller piece of the massive rock now think about that you are a rock but on this rock or we could say it like this because it's hard to communicate it in English, but the thought is kind of like this. You are a little piece of the big rock, but on this big rock, I will build my church. He didn't say, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. He said, Peter, you're a part of, you're just a small part of the big rock, and on this big rock, I'm going to build my church. Well, who's the big rock? Well, Jesus is the big rock, right? What Jesus was saying, Peter, you've received a revelation from heaven. And the revelation you received is the revelation of who I am. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that revelation of who I am, upon that truth of who I am, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that truth, upon me, is really what he's saying, the church will be built. And you, Peter, are a part of that rock. It speaks of the fact that we are the body and he is the head. My hand is a part of my body, right? My hand, my toes, my kneecap, my elbow, those are parts of the body. But it's not that we're identified by our hand or our toes or our kneecap or our elbow, my identity, if you pull out your driver's license right now, what is, what is the picture of? Is it a picture of your knee? Is it a picture of your big toe? Is it a picture of your hand or your elbow? 
No, it's a picture of your head, isn't it? And so when that officer comes to your window and says, Sir, can I see your driver's license? He's going to look at that picture of your head to find out who you are, isn't he? And if you hand him a driver's license that has a different head than the one that's sitting in that car, he's going to say, boy, who are you? Because this ain't you. Peter was a part. We are a part of the whole. Jesus is the whole. He is the head. But look what he says. On this rock, I will build. I will. Not I might. I will build my church. And then he makes this promise. This is the promise. The promise that he will build and the promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail. We can say that Jesus, right there, before he went to the cross. Now, Jesus knew where he was going. In Matthew, 8, in Matthew 16 here, they're very, very close. They're on their way to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And he is beginning to reveal to them who he is. He's beginning to remind them of what's going to happen. He is cluing them in. He is letting them know what's fixing to take place. And he was going to die so that he could be raised and ascend and establish his church. And he makes this statement, and it is a promise to all of us who are part of the rock that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's promised us victory. Now, there are lots of there are lots of promises of victory made to us all the time. You can read about, about them in books. You can watch them on uh, television. You can hear people talking about the promises of victory. Jesus promised victory. What was the victory he promised? That his church would be built. He didn't promise you, as the song goes, a rose garden. Did he? <laughs> You might have one. He said you are a city, a shining city on a hill. He said that's who you are. Don't hide your light. But he didn't promise that you'd live on a mansion on a hill, did he? He didn't promise that, but you might. I kind of hope you do. The victory Jesus promised us is the victory of his church. In other words, Jesus came to do a work. What was the work that he came to do? First John tells us, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the devil. And what was the work of the devil from the very beginning? It was a work of separation. It was a work of death. Remember, Hebrews said, Jesus went to the cross, and by his death on the cross, he defeated him who had power over death. Jesus, he was manifest to destroy the work of the devil. He brought an end to the, the separation of death. 
He made a way for man to come back into fellowship and relationship with God. That's, that's the good news. And Jesus said, I will do that. And the gates of hell will not prevail. It won't prevail against it. My church will be built and she will be victorious. Now let's, let's go over a couple of pages here and let's go to Matthew 18. So the church, what is the church? The church is the place of victory. What does that mean? It's, it's the victory that God has bought for us in Jesus Christ. He is our victory. Do you realize that? Do you realize that what kind of car you drive or don't drive is not your victory? What kind of house you live in or don't live in, is, that's not your victory. How much money's in your bank or not in your bank is, is not, that's not your victory. You might be Bill Gates. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, how much victory do you really have? You might gain all the gold in all the world, but lose your soul. And Jesus said, what have you got to show for yourself? Not one thing. So victory, the victory that he's promised us is the victory of the establishment of his church. And what is his church? It is his body. It's him. It's his life manifest in the earth. And we have been brought into and made a part of that life. Man, that's good news. I mean, we're not just a part of a rock. We are. But it's a living rock. It's a living stone. Peter said, you are being built up as living stones into a holy habitation for God in the Spirit. What God has given us is life. It's living it's victorious and it can't be taken away from us. The gates of hell will not prevail. If they could, they would. Do you understand that? They are continually trying to prevail, but they cannot prevail. And the enemy wants you to believe that they can and that they will, but they won't because Jesus has promised. But let's understand what true victory is and let's not be confused and believe that victory is something that God has never said this is what you measure and define victory by let's look at another aspect of of life and worship in the church Matthew 18 let's begin in verse 15 Matthew 18 15 now, now remember before we start this what happened, to, what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? What did the work of the enemy do? What, how did it affect Adam and Eve and God? How did it affect them? It brought a what? Between their relationship. It brought a division. It brought a separation, right? Now let's look here. Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. What happens if your brother hears you? Jesus said, you have gained your brother. Which implies that 
what's happened. Something came and brought a separation. And I don't have my brother. There's something that's come between me and my brother. But if I go to my brother and he hears me, Jesus said, you have gained your brother. There's a restoration that's taken place. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two, one or two, one or two more, I'm sorry, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if you go to your brother alone and he won't hear you, Jesus says, take one or two more so that by the word, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, this isn't gossip, okay? This is, this is, about, this is about restoration. Do you understand the spirit in which Jesus is, is, is communicating this? And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I didn't, I didn't read, I don't know that I read the rest. Did I read the rest of, of uh, Matthew? I did not. Matthew 16, 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In verse 19 says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When Jesus made the declaration that he will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he also said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we come to Matthew 18. 15, and Jesus is talking about a bro- two brothers who have fallen into disunity, contention, and disagreement. And there has been a sin committed against a brother. And he says to the brother who has had the sin committed, go to your brother, go to him alone, and talk to him. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then go to one or two more, and then go with them to him that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established and talk to him. And if he won't hear you two or three more, if he won't hear them the second time, then go to the church. What is the, what is, what is the implication here? That this brother, what's he called? This guy's called a brother. He's not, he is someone who is in the family. He's in fellowship, right? He's a brother. And Jesus said, go to this brother, and if he won't hear, he said, then let him be to you like a heathen. He's not a heathen, but he said, let him. In other words, if he refuses to hear and he won't be restored, then you just have to let him be, and let him be to you a heathen. That doesn't mean you hate him. That means he won't repent he's not sorry for what's happened and there's nothing Jesus said there's nothing you can do you've done everything you can do so you just love him you forgive him and you go on and and he's not part of your life not because you don't want him to be because because you've made the effort to restore him but but he refuses to be but now look at this 
Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Do you realize how out of context the scripture is taken? Both of these scriptures I've just read to you from Matthew 16 and in this scripture Matthew 18. We take these scriptures and we use them to, to do all kinds of things they were never intended to do. I mean, we use it to name and claim to get whatever we think that we need or desire. Do you see the context of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18? He's talking about unity. He's not talking about a blank check that he's giving you to get whatever you want. He's talking about within the church. Jesus uses the word church here. Go to the church. Go to the assembly of called out ones. And if he will not hear the assembly of called out ones, then let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. For assuredly I say to you, remember what he said to Peter? He's saying it again. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say that if two of you agree, what two is he talking about? He's talking about the two guys that had the problem here. But if you guys can come in agreement, there has been a sin committed. And if you guys can come into agreement, whatever you ask shall be done by your Father in heaven. According to the Jews, who and who alone had the power to forgive sins? God. You know what Jesus is saying? If you two can come in agreement, if this brother will come and agree with you and repent, you forgive him. You forgive him. I give you the power to forgive him. But I thought only God could forgive sins, the Pharisee says to Jesus. Who are you to forgive sins? Only God forgives sins. And Jesus' silence was deafening. In other words, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Only God has the power to heal. Yeah, you're right. I just healed that guy and I just forgave him. What do you think about that? And Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. I give you the authority to bind and loose. I give you the authority to forgive. If you guys can come in agreement, that forgiveness can be administered. It can be done. It will be done for them by who? By my Father in heaven. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You can come in agreement and say, Father, forgive him, forgive her. For where, look at this, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now I'm talking to you tonight about the church. Jesus made a declaration of victory. He said, my church will be victorious. He comes over here, and now he's talking about unity. He said, my desire, I give you the power, the authority to bring unity to my body. If someone commits a sin, because Jesus is very understanding of what's going to be happening in just a few short years. 
Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. There will be no more turtle doves and little lambs taken to the temple and sacrificed for trespass and sin that we commit against one another. Jesus said, no, the power to forgive is not going to be in that temple anymore. It's not going to be in the sacrifice of bulls and goats and turtle doves. The power to forgive sin is not going to be an animal sacrifice. The power to forgive sin is going to rest with you. I give to you the keys of the kingdom. I give to you the right to bind and loose. Whatever is bound on on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Assuredly, I say to you, for where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, just to let you know what Pete, what th- th- this is the context that Jesus is talking in about, look at what Peter says. Then verse 21 says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I, I forgive him? And Jesus goes in this whole thing. I say, not seven times, but 70 times seven, which basically meant as often as it takes, you forgive him. If he comes to you, I mean, if he sins against you, you forgive him. If he doesn't repent, then that's on him. He has separated himself from you, but you forgive him. But, but Jesus, you know, after seven times, that seems reasonable. You know, that's, that, this is... This is what the law says. This is, you know, a reasonable thing, you know. I mean, surely, Lord, after that many times, then I have the right to just cut that dude off. I don't have to forgive him. No, Jesus said, no, you forgive him. You forgive him. Seventy times seven, you forgive him. I've given you the power. Why? Because Jesus said, you are. You are the rock, remember? You are a piece of me. You are a part of me. And this is the way of the kingdom. Jesus said, don't operate out of Gentile mentality anymore. Peter, you are a part of me now. Remember what I told you. Upon this rock, you are Peter. You're a rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. I gave you and I give to all of those who are a part of me the keys of the kingdom, the authority to bind, to loose. I give you the authority to forgive. Even if they commit sin against you 70 times, seven times, you have the authority to forgive. Because I give you that authority. Because Jesus says, I want my body not only to be victorious, but I want my body to be unified. Don't you want your body to be unified? I mean, you you don't want your body to be separated and mutilated, do you? See, God's into unity. The enemy, he's into separation. And Jesus said, my church should not only be a place with the promise of victory, but my church should also be the place that is the promise of unity. And I have given you the power and the authority to bring unity. See, we look at scriptures like this, and they do speak of discipline. But the whole point of discipline is to restore what? It's to restore unity. It's to restore the life of the body. Because if a part of your body has been separated, there is a disruption of the flow of life, isn't there? There's pain, there's suffering, there's not proper function. But when all the pieces 
are fitly joined together in their proper place, and each joint is supplying what the other needs, there is a flow of life and a building up of the body in love. And Jesus said, sin and offenses will come, but you forgive. And you, to the best of your ability, bring restoration and unity back to the body. I give you the authority to do that. What I want is for you to agree together. Then he makes this statement in verse 20 that I think is very interesting. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Why two or three in my name? I mean, you telling me, Pastor, that I can't just go out and sit under the tree and me and God can't have our... You telling me God's not there? No, I'm not saying God's not there. God's everywhere. But I'm saying, and what Jesus is saying, there is something powerful. There is something mystical. There is something that is of the divine order and of the divine administration when my body comes together. When two or three come together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Church, this is why it's so important for us to assemble together. There is something mysterious and powerful that takes place when the body of Christ comes together in unity. In the name of Jesus, fellowshipping in that name. Now let's go over to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, let's begin in verse 14. Verse 14, First Timothy 3 says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Let's read that verse again. Paul says, if I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God. Is he talking about a building? He's talking about the house of God. He's not talking about a building. The house of God might meet in a building. But the building is irrelevant apart from the people. Because the church isn't the building, the church is the people. It's nice to have a building to meet in, right? Whether it be a home or a building like this, big or small, it doesn't matter. It's nice to have that, but, but this building is not what defines the house of God. This is the house of God. Why? Because we meet here. If, if Frank's cabinet shop was here, would we call this the house of God? No. We'd call it Frank's cabinet shop, wouldn't we? 
But now, if we came together every weekend and met in Frank's cabinet shop, guess what? Frank's cabinet shop could be transformed into the place the house of God meets. The church of the living God. So when he says, I write these things to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Is he talking about how we should act inside the building? Don't, sw- sing from the sh- don't swing from the chandeliers. Don't jump the pews. Don't roll on the floor. You know, everything holy rollers do. Don't do that because we're Baptist. Oh, but we're Pentecostal. We can do that, Pastor. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is that what he's talking about? No. How do you conduct yourself in the house of God? In other words, I'm writing these things to you that you may know how to conduct yourself within the body of Christ. How to interact with one another. Timothy was a leader. He was a pastor. And he's telling, he's giving him very practical instruction here. He just got through telling him about the qualifications of deacons. Now he's going to go on, he's going to talk to him about a lot of other practical things. But he's talking about how the body, how the church, how the house of God interacts together. How they relate together. How they function together. How they carry out the work of the ministry together. How they fulfill the commission and the commandment of Jesus together. How they manifest the very life of Christ as the body of Christ. I'm writing these things that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Is that, is that, that phrase should call to remembrance what Jesus said. What, Peter, what was revealed to Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Paul says, Timothy... I'm writing these things to you that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And then he goes on with an even greater descriptor here, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's a powerful statement right there. Do you hear what Paul is saying to Timothy? Timothy, the church, the house of God, the church of of the living God, is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's a powerful statement. What what does a pillar do? It provides support, doesn't it? It holds something up. In the temple were these massive pillars that held up this massive ceiling and structure. But what were those pillars sitting on? You say, well, they were sitting on a foundation. What was the foundation sitting on? The ground. The church who is the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the bedrock of truth. It goes all the way down to where you can't go down anymore. And it rests on that which is the bottom line. It rests on that which is the bedrock of everything. Everything. Seen and unseen. In heaven, on earth. 
It is the pillar and ground of the truth. Do you realize that when God created heaven and earth, do you realize that before God created heaven and earth, do you know what his purpose was? It was the church. What is the church? It is the body of his son. It is the expression of his son. It is the expression and the life of his son. That's what the church is. And Paul is reminding Timothy, he says, Timothy, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was talking about that which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now why am I why am I saying this to you tonight? You might say, but Pastor Jeff, I know this. My question is, do we really know it, though? I mean, I know you hear what I'm saying. I know you've read the scripture before, probably. But do we really know it? When you walk in through those doors, do you reverence this place, not because of the building, but because of what? gathers and assembles here that when Jesus said where two or three are gathered in my name I am there in the midst of them so well God's with me everywhere I go well that's true but there is something powerful there is something mystical I mean right here look what Paul says Paul goes on and without controversy great is the mystery of godliness there is nothing special about this building. But there is something very special about the children of God coming together in unity under the banner and the name of Jesus Christ. Knowing that we are a piece of that rock. Knowing that we are a part of his body. And that we have assembled in this place and that the very fact that we have assembled here, we represent the very pillar and ground of the truth. We represent the very pillar and ground of what God purposed to do before he ever flung one star to the farthest corner of his universe. He purposed, the bottom line was, to, to, to put within the earth the expression of the life of his son. And he has made us a part of that. And Paul is saying, and Jesus was saying, understand. Who do men say that I am, guys? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, if that's true, what does that say about us? Why do you think, you think Jesus said that to Peter because Peter got the right answer? He won the prize, so now he gets to be the rock? Uh-uh. He said that because it was the truth. Because the fact that he came to establish his church spoke to the fact that we were destined to be a part of his body. That we were to be a piece of that rock. 
And I wonder, does the church, does the church get it? Peter got it, but he didn't get it because men told him. He didn't get it because he went to the family Christian bookstore and bought a book and learned it. He didn't order it off Amazon or go to Barnes and Nobles. Hey, guess what? I just read this book and I found out who I am. Uh Uh-uh. See, that's what we want to do. No, it was revealed to him by heaven. The Spirit of God revealed it to him. You know how we're going to know that we are the pillar and the ground of the truth today? It's going to have to be revealed to us by the Spirit. Now, here's the question. Are we content with being who we think we are? Are we content with the church being what man or culture or whoever or whatever has said that it is? Are we content with, with, with our understanding based on all the books that we've read? Or do we want to get a revelation that doesn't come from something man has given us? Do we want to get a deeper revelation, the revelation that Jesus gave us? I'm with you, Sister Bussy. I want the revelation from Jesus. It's not, a, it's not a complicated revelation. It's not something that God is, 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 is trying to withhold and only those that are very, very special can find it. No, he says, if you, if you want it, seek after it. Ask for it. Knock until it's open for you. But the question is, do we want it? Do we want it? Or are we content to be defined, to accept what might be the status quo. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, understand who you are. Understand what you're a part of. Understand what's been entrusted to you. I'm writing to you so that you may know how to conduct yourself within the body of Christ. That you may know how to function, how to supply life, how to receive life, how to live in victory, how to live in unity, how to live and understand and comprehend what is the width and the depth and the height of the love of God to know that you have been made a part of something that is the very pillar and ground of the truth. Timothy, there is not anything that you can experience and be a part of that is greater than what you are a part of. Everything that you are seeing around you, everything that you are doing, everything that your ministry is built on, everything that your salvation and and your eternal hope is resting in, the church represents the pillar and the ground of all of that. It is what Jesus left in the earth to make known as a witness and a testimony of what he has done through the finished work of the cross. You can't separate the gospel from the church. You can't separate the church from the gospel or from Christ. And if we don't have a fundamental understanding, a true spiritual comprehension of these things, we're going to believe a lie. We're going we're to fall for a delusion. Doesn't mean that we're not saved. It doesn't mean that we're not going to die and go to heaven one day. That's not what I'm saying. Doesn't mean you're not part of the body of Christ. But how sad that so many saints are going to go through this life never knowing what they were really a part of. Never truly 
comprehending what Jesus did for them on the cross. Chasing a dangling carrot that some wolf in sheep's clothing put out there for them to chase after. How sad is that? When God has given us his word right here, and he has put within us his very spirit to make known, to reveal this living word to us, so that we can comprehend what we have been made a part of, that which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. See, what I'm talking about, you're not going to get from an experience. Though experiences are fine. You can have all the experiences in the world, but if you don't get a revelation by the Spirit of God, your experience is hollow at best. It might, it might give you goosebumps upon your goosebumps, but when the goosebumps are gone, what do you have? But when you receive a revelation by the Spirit of God, you have received something that has been imparted to you that cannot be taken away from you. That's why Jesus says, don't fear those who have power over your body. That's my phone sitting in the window. Spencer, go move my phone from the window. It won't ring. When you receive a revelation from God, that can't be taken away from you. They might kill you, they might take everything you have, but they cannot take away the truth. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying. Don't fear what they can do to your body. Get a revelation of me, get a revelation of the truth that will set you free. Because if you don't have that, then that's when you really should be scared. That's what you should be fearful of. Hebrews 10, verse 19. <clears throat> now, I love the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to guess who? Hebrews. And he's writing to these Hebrews who, who have probably for the most part accepted Jesus as their Messiah but they can't give up the old ways. They want to add to. They want to keep sacrificing animals. They want to keep doing these things just as an insurance policy. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, look, Jesus did it once and for all. There's not anything you can add to it. The blood of bulls and goats means nothing anymore. Jesus is the one. And so, he's writing to them, and in verse, let's begin in 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now that therefore is therefore a reason, right? Whenever you see the therefore, it's therefore a reason. And you need to know what the therefore is there for. So you go back, and, and the writer is quoting... From the prophet Jeremiah. Let's go back to verse 16. 
Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. He doesn't say the prophet witnesses to us. He says the Holy Spirit witnesses to us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is what inspired the prophet to write these words. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. When was that? Now. Why now? Because Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's already ascended. They're looking, Jeremiah wrote, looking to the cross. He, the writer of Hebrews is writing, looking back. He said, Jeremiah spoke of what was to come. It's already happened. Now, there is no longer an offering for sin. Why? Because Jesus made the offering once and for all. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. What was the old and dead way? He's talking about entering the holiest. You know what that is? That is the holy of holies. That is the temple with all of its courts. Outer court, inner court. Then you go in where all the, the, the furniture is and all the utensils are. Then there's a veil and you go in behind that veil. And it was the holy place. And in the holy place... There was the, the menorah and the table of showbread and the altar of incense. But then there was another veil in the holy place. And when you went behind that veil, that was called the holiest of holies. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant was. With the mercy seat and the cherubim. And once a year, only once a year, only once a year, and only one man was allowed to go into the holiest of holies. That was the high priest. And that was on the day of atonement. So if we were Hebrews. And we were reading this letter that had been written to us. We would understand very clearly. What the writer is talking about. When we see therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest. We know he's talking about going behind that last veil. And going into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat was. Do you know that when Jesus died on the cross, there was no Ark and there was no mercy seat in the temple? Do you know that? From the, Bab from the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was never restored to the temple. It was not. And I believe God did that on purpose because he knew that was a shadow and the real, the real thing was coming. And God, I believe, wanted to make sure that when the true mercy seat hung on the cross, there was not a shadow sitting in the temple. And when that veil was rent from top to bottom, that thing was empty because the true mercy seat was hanging on a cross. And God didn't let that mercy seat exist in that temple. He did not. He sent the true mercy seat in the form of His Son. So I go on and he says, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. That is Jesus Christ. That's by his blood and by his resurrection and by his life. Which he consecrated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. And having a high priest over 
the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near, let us, not just the high priest, but let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's the high priest sprinkling the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water by the washing of the water of the word. He is the living word that has washed us clean. Let us hold, look at this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What is hope? Hold your finger right there and let's go to Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Why did he say hold fast the confession of your hope? Because we are allowed to draw near behind the veil into the Holy of Holies in these corrupt flesh and blood bodies. Do you realize that? And we can come, not like the high priest of old, who had to make sure he spent a year getting ready for this one day. And on that day, everything had to be perfect. But he says, now we can come, hold fast to your confession of hope because we can now come with boldness and with confidence by a new and living way. Through the veil of his flesh, we can come to the very throne of grace with boldness and with confidence by the blood of Jesus. That's our hope. We're still living in these corrupt bodies, but one day they shall be redeemed. We have the hope. They haven't been redeemed yet. But even though they haven't been redeemed yet, God allows us in Christ to come into the place no man was able to come to but once a year. But now we can come at will. Matter of fact, we live. We live in that place. David said, oh, that I could dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Guess what? If you are a part of the rock, you dwell in the place David longed to dwell forever. You live, you live in the Holy of Holies. You live and you abide in his presence right now by a new and a living way. Now look at this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting encouraging and building up one another and so much more as you see the day approaching not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together on that day of atonement it was one of three feast days that all israel every male in israel was commanded to assemble in jerusalem and the nation stood watching the high priest sacrifice that lamb and take that blood on hyssop and go through that veil and apply that blood to the mercy seat. The whole nation stood there and they saw him go to make atonement for sin. And they waited to see whether he was going to come back out. 
having accomplished that atonement. Do not, why did they assemble? They were called to assemble to witness, to be a witness of the redemption of God. To be a witness of what God, year after year, would do in extending grace and mercy and forgiving their sin. Why are we commanded to assemble together? Because our assembly, just like Israel's, because our assembling together, we assemble together to be a witness to God's redeeming work. But more than that, we assemble together because we are called to participate in the life of His body. And we are called to assemble together because we are a body assembled to the head and experiencing the flow of life that God has put inside of this body. It's a, it's a natural miracle. It's a wonder. But being part of the body of Christ and partaking of that life is a greater miracle. It's a greater mystery. And our assembling together bears witness to that. See, we don't come here just to get entertained. We don't come here to see what we're going to get from the preacher today. This is why it says consider one another. We come here as an act of worship proclaiming the mysterious body of Christ. Proclaiming the, the mysterious work of redemption that Jesus has done. Proclaiming the mystery that we are now a piece of the rock. The rock of our salvation. We are here proclaiming the mystery that we are the very pillar and ground of the truth. Do we, do we understand this? Do we comprehend this? Have we gotten the spiritual revelation of it? Are we going to divide when things don't go to suit us? Well, brother so-and-so made me upset. I'm going to go find me another church. Well, sister so-and-so didn't say hi to me this week. And See, if we don't have a revelation of who we are and what this is all about, do you see, do you see how the enemy has come in? Because if it's really about God, if it's really about the body of Christ, we wouldn't let that happen for anything. You tell me Christ is not greater than those things? He is greater. Jesus said, look, if you're a part of my church, my will, my desire is for you to be in unity and agreement. You go and you work those things out. You do what it takes to work it out. I pray, church, that we get the revelation. When the church abandons her disobedience, can the world be far behind? Judgment begins in the house of God. Let's quit trying to save the world. God is the only one that can save the world. Let's begin to focus on being expression of his life. Let's put the house in order. Let's let the head bring order to the body. Let's let the head bring order to the house. And when the house comes into order, I'm going to tell you what, the world will be unsettled. By what, it, by what it sees. The world looks at the church right now and laughs and says, they're no different than I am. Why, why would they want to come and join us? They need to see something different. They need to see Christ. Amen. Worship team, come on up.
Now you are a part of the most wonderful, mysterious thing that's ever existed. You are a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your natural mind can't comprehend it. But it doesn't make it less true. What I want, what I want us to do as, as they lead us in worship, I want you just to, to divide in small groups. And I want you to pray for one another.